Hello, I'm Rob Forsyth. Welcome to Liberalism in Question. In this half-hour podcast series from the Centre for Independent Studies, we explore questions and challenges to liberalism today. My guest today is Ruth Richardson. Ruth is a fierce campaigner for reform in liberal economics and social life. She served significantly as the Minister of Finance in the uh, in the New Zealand Parliament between um, 1990 and 93. Uh, she now runs a very active uh, consultancy, Ruth Richardson New Zealand Limited, and has written it widely. Ruth, welcome to the program. Thanks, Rob. R- Ruth, I I often think of you as a strong economic liberal, even whether it's right or wrong, someone who's associated with neoliberalism. The world seems to have turned its back on that today. Is your ship sailed? Not at all. Uh, in fact, would, would it uh, come back to port and pretty soon? It's true that liberalism has taken a hammering on many fronts of late. If you look at the global pandemic, I mean, that's absolutely wreaked havoc with the notion. I mean, we've seen an unleashing of the full powers of the state, uh, the use of its coercive powers. The population, apparently in the name of health before wealth, uh, has been generally compliant and consenting to that coercion. And in the wake of dealing, of course, with the hammer blow of the pandemic, uh, we have seen the full force of monetary and fiscal policy uh, has been you know, unleashed. Uh, that firepower uh, used to full force and now largely spent. And then we've got Putin flicking the kill bill in uh, the Ukraine, uh, to switch switch on war. Uh, and Francis Fukuyama calls this Putin's war on the liberal order. Yes. So it's as well as we reflect on the contemporary issues to go back to first principles, because the idea of liberalism taking centre stage in the affairs of a nation, in the affairs of the business world, and in the affairs of us as individuals and our families and our society, I think that if liberalism is to be restored to its dynamic, rightful place, it, it, it centres really on three things, the ideas, the institutions and the individuals. And the idea of, of that freedom uh, and institutions that, that buttress that freedom uh, and individuals who are prepared to champion that freedom, uh, there's been an erosion on all fronts. I mean, on the ideas front, uh, you know, COVID has brought with it big government in its wake. And the COVID response might have been uh, necessary and compelling at the time. Uh, what is the, the uh, quite um, horrifying uh, exercise in the wake is, is the rising tide of, of the state and government in the name of having to, you know, take more control to the post-COVID levers. And then we've got the institutions that have seen their credibility eroded in short order. I mean, they've trashed the brand. Central banks, fiscal authorities, uh, they've opened the spigot, uh, they've thrown everything at it, they've they've called all sorts of um, uh, fancy names like, you know, modern monetary theory, etc. The fact of the matter is the institutions that we might have relied upon uh, to ensure that those principles are good at the macro level uh, have in fact uh, they've they um, deserted the, uh, the the Liberal Party, and then individuals who might be expected to carry the flag, uh, as as I did in my time, um, you could argue 
Paul Keating, uh, Peter Costello, yes. Roger Douglas, uh, in, in, in our both jurisdictions. Uh, the individuals you might look to in a contemporary sense seem to have abandoned North Star, which is the liberal order, in favour of popularity contests. So you see Macron prevailing uh, recently in, in France, Mr Jupiter King uh, of no principle, and Adun here in New Zealand fast losing uh, her star power, but nevertheless uh, in the current uh, um, New Zealand parliament governing in her own right. And they're the two most prominent examples of populism over principle. All is not lost, however, before we, we get down to uh, you know, more detail. If you look in the last little while, the train that's left the station is the idea that the state should coerce people in their personal and social choices. So, you know, the, the, the notion of, um, you know, gay marriage, for example, uh, that women uh, might be able to stand on any pedestal that they wish, uh, free from um, constraint uh, and imposition. Um, you know, those notions have now well and truly taken hold in the societies in which we live. Uh, so all is not lost. I, I think social and personal liberalism uh, is in pretty good shape. Uh, it's when we, we when we look more broadly that we have to worry. Last sort of big picture um, reflection. I mean, paradoxically, the war in the Ukraine has woken up the West, which was in the process over the last decade of committing cultural suicide uh, or principled suicide. You know, the brave people uh, under the Ukrainian flag have shown what it means literally to fight for a liberal cause. And it's been a huge wake-up call for the West. Germany suddenly overnight uh, getting to shoulder its defence responsibilities. Finland and Sweden uh, almost overnight saying, yeah, we're up for NATO. But more importantly, I think there's a sense of uh, revisiting the feeling of, of 1989, when there were freedom fighters all over the constrained uh, and autocratic world, uh, and you saw liberalism breaking out in ways that were so advantageous, socially, economically, politically, uh, to the citizens of those countries. You know, we've become complacent, uh, we've become uh, indulgent, uh, and we've become fixated on small causes. Now there's a very big cause. Uh, and I think that big cause is the awakening of liberalism to again play its wonderful part in you know, the dynamic world that we all want to be part of. Thank you. Yes. Um, could I have, perhaps start there? Liberalism as an ideal, I believe, evolved in effort to try and move away from the overweening authority of the governments, particularly monarchies, and even if I say so myself, the church. <laughs> Mm -hmm. uh, and mm -hmm. in, in Europe, when the time there was a great desire for belief that human freedom was best for human flourishing. When it succeeds and there's no enemy anymore, it seems to be a philosophy which is hard to get excited about until it is lost again. Mm -hmm. Does liberalism need an enemy? Well, you'd, you'd hope that it would flourish in its own right. Uh, you'd hope that it would have appeal for all seasons and in, in all um, nations. I mean, you, you, you can accept let a thousand flowers bloom, quoting Mayo, for goodness sake. Uh, and, you know, you, 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 would, you would hope uh, that the flourishing that comes under the liberal order uh, would be for all seasons. Uh, and it's when people become complacent, 
uh, when, when they, as I say, start focusing on issues at the margin, uh, and when they lose their fight for the cause, I mean, that, that, that's why uh, regimes, you know, I, I was on the phone all last night to Shanghai. If you look at China as the equal and opposite, uh, the Chinese are very patriotic and very passionate mm. uh, about uh, their uh, way of, of operating as a nation in a way that we haven't been uh, in the West. And it's, it's really a matter of, as I say, 1989 revisited, having to rediscover uh, the huge, not just economic utility, but the huge virtue of, of the human dynamic uh, that powers up nations, that powers up economies, that powers up you know, families and societies. Yes, yes. It's rediscovering that that's important. Can I, can I go, though, to the economic for a moment? Because... Francis Fukuyama himself actually says in in that uh, in the article he wrote on this uh, question of Putin's war on the liberal order, which you mentioned, that one liberalism's own success has led to its weakness in some way. And he says um, that the the economic liberalism of the post-war years morphed into what's called neoliberalism and talks about free markets and cutting back welfare state and regulation. Then he says this. Cuts to social spending in state sectors removed the buffers that protected individuals from market vagaries, leading to a large increase in inequality over the past two generations. And he thinks that that both led to, imply that leads to some of the pressures that, that popularism has led to. People have missed out. And he says, while some of this retrenchment was justified, it was carried to extremes and led, for example, to re regulation of US financial markets in the 80s and 90s, that destabilised them and brought on financial crisis such as the subprime meltdown of 2008. Worship of efficiency led to the outsourcing of jobs and the destruction of working class communities in rich countries, which laid the ground for popularism in the 2010s. Now, do, do you acknowledge any of that critique? Well, who, who what, otherwise, I, it wasn't I, just complacency, it was some of the ill effects of the way in which liberal economic law was applied. Yeah, all right. Well, who am I to argue with an, an eminent mind like Francis Fukuyama? But I, I think that it's a stretch too far to say that, you know, neoliberalism, which of itself uh, is a, um, not, it's not a term of endearment, that, 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 that's for sure. It, it, it's, an oh. easy, it's an easy, lazy label. Uh, to throw at, at those who were champions of, of opening up, as it were. Um, if, if we look at, say, at, at the, the really big, big, you know, Teutonic shifts, say that the GFC in, in 2008, yep. it is a wrong analysis to say that that was the consequence of a, a, an, an open market type regime. The Freddie May and Fannie Mac intervention in the housing market in America, backed by the state, the instrument of the state uh, was like a big, uh, clumsy bulldozer uh, that was, um, you know, the, the politicians of the day, Clinton in particular, wanted the state to have an active part uh, in ensuring uh, housing, even at the huge risk, and the risk actually transpired. So there was no risk management at all on the part of the state. And I would argue that a more correct analysis of the GFC was not, in fact, the economic framework. It was the state blundering in in an area where it thought there was no risk assessment to be made. Um, if you look now at the, the exacerbation of inequality, it's that we've had loose 
fiscal and monetary policy for all of this time where money has effectively been available at zero and who are the people who've been available, who've been, you know, who've taken the opportunity to take advantage of those conditions, certainly not those in the lower order. It's those who could afford to buy the second and third house. I would argue that the abandonment of robust fiscal and monetary policy has done more to exacerbate inequality than any economic setting that relied on freedom and opening up as its first principles. So I, I don't accept uh, the cause and effect. And you know you can give the, the modern monetary theory, et cetera. The fact of the matter now is we're gonna be brought to our knees by high inflation. We're gonna have a legacy of high debt and there is no more fiscal firepower to target those uh, who, who need, need our, our, the vulnerable who need our intervention most. The intervention by the state should have been targeted and temporary, and it was neither. Yes, and it's the yes. people at the bottom of the heap who are paying the price. Let's push back slightly again. And when, with the opening of economies, it does mean that certain industries, there are losers and, there, there are losers and winners when you, when you open an economy. There's overall benefit, but losers and winners, particularly with ma manufacturing and the, so forth in the 90s, 80s and 90s. Do you think enough was done to make sure that they benefited from, from, the, from the results of the liberal revolution of the 80s and 90s. Because the, the argument, again, is inequality lack of, and lack mm. of welfare led to populism. That's, that, that's the case that people, even like Fukuyama says. Mm. Well, you know, I am a big believer in, in uh, Schumpeter, creative destruction. You know, the, the, the advent, 1989, again, was a seminal year, not just that globally, it was a big geopolitical, um, huge swing in favour of, of open economies and, and political and economic liberalism, but the, the internet was created in 1989 as well. And that more than anything else created a new way of working, a new dynamic. There were going to be winners and losers for sure, but what is unambiguously the case, even if you go to a country like China, there's 400 million people were lifted out of poverty uh, by that dynamic of international trade, for example. That people in the Ukraine who I worked with a few years ago that were able to supply the world out of their high-tech workshops. I didn't uh, know that. I, I didn't yeah, know that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If, if, I mean, if, if you want to get a ski boot at the moment, you can't get it because it comes from Ukraine. Uh, my political website is, is basically uh, transacted out, out of a platform in the Ukraine. Uh, so what we've seen is, is you know, yes, there's been a very substantial dynamic. Yes, there have been people who, quote-unquote, have been left behind. And the issue is, you know, the real cause of the left behind. One of the very big fingers should be pointed at education. Uh, if you don't give people uh, the tools with which to make the adaptations, yes, they are going to be left behind. And I think the big new frontier, the big new Berlin walls that fell in 1989 are in health, education and social welfare. Because in the name of helping those who are the most vulnerable, those three policy settings have abysmally failed those who need the education uh, boost. Uh, you know, Jennifer Buckingham had it right a long time ago. Uh, the, the welfare system, you know, those who argue for a universal basic wage want basically to have indentured individuals permanently in hock to the state. That cannot be an environment in which people can flourish and in which we, we can have the dynamism that, that we're after. I'll just back up a second for, for, for the case of the list. Creative destruction is the concept that 
for things to move forward, there needs to be destruction as well as building, and that holding on to some things and actually hold back the, the moving forward. Destruction can be creative. Mm-hmm. And that's a, your comment about education and welfare and, and, and medicine reminds me that in this country, I don't know about yours in New Zealand, we measure outcomes by inputs, not outcomes. Well, uh, what, one other thing, Rob, right. it, it, this, this is self-advertisement. In 1989, there was another very, very crucial thing in New Zealand, and that was the Public Finance Act. And I yes. put it in the same league as the falling of the Berlin Wall and the, the uh, advent of, of the internet. Because what we did then as a matter of public financial management was we moved from input to outputs uh, and ministers actually purchased outputs so that they could better advance the outcomes they said that they wanted. So currently most uh, nations, you know, who say they care about education and pour all the money in, there's no link between resources and results at all, none. Here in Australia, we've gone backwards despite a massive increase in spending. And I, the big thing is the individuals who are suffering that is the big issue here. Well, it is. If, if you look at a lot of this does involve a basic, a fundamental discussion about the role of the state. The role mm. of the state we saw in its proper sense during the pandemic. Public health crisis, only the state can intervene. You want the state to do a superb job. Monetary policy, only the state can run monetary policy. The declaration of a war, as we know, only the state uh, can involve itself in that activity. So you, you want what the state does, its reserve powers, if you like, to be conducted superbly. The trouble is the state has extended its remit well beyond that and has assumed, say in education, it should be the controller of education, it should be the funder of education, it should be the, the supplier of education. You get this big state monopoly and absolutely no accountability at all for the outcomes. You know, if you look at most education systems uh, that, that uh, you know, are held up in, in the liberal world, they're like a car factory. A third of the cars go, they never have to go back to the factory again. A third of the cars don't go, they have to be returned for remedial repair. And a third of the cars don't go at all. And the cars that don't go at all are the kids who should be looking to the state to break that linkage between, you know, dysfunctional families, you yes, know, parents yes, who don't yes. value education, and the state doesn't do its job. Can I ask about privatisation you, mm-hmm. of, of public utilities and of large? Is this something you, that you think is a good thing? Because I want yes. to ask, because many cases it seems to me has led to a kind of a kind of monopoly capitalism of certain big forces. Uh, we've had it here in, 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 where, where in fact, the public good is not can't public good often can't be the purpose. That's not the purpose of directors. Those companies it must be to shareholder return. Surely, if 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 it's a monopoly, these things shouldn't be private. Right, which comes back then to first principles. What is the yes. environment in which you 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 think about a privatisation decision? And even although the efficiency argument is compelling. Uh, for these affairs to be conducted, these resources to be managed in the private sector. If you're simply privatising a monopoly, you're making a big, big mistake because it can yes. more efficiently fleece the public and you don't, don't want that a, a, at all. Uh, so, the, the, again, you come back to the role of the state, setting the rules of the game. You know, if you believe in liberalism, you believe in choice. Choice is, is anathema to, or monopolies are anathema to choice. So you want to attend, first of all, to the competitive framework to ensure that new entrants can play, 
that the dynamic forces of creative destruction can play uh, and in, in that environment then take the, the bank, uh, the telecommunications company, the energy company and whatever, privatise into that environment. But simply to ignore the first step, which is the environment, the rules of the game that ensure that competitive forces are there, uh, is, is, is to lead to just doubling down uh, on not only a bad monopoly in state hands, but an even worse monopoly in private hands. This makes me think that so often liberalism, is, economic liberalism, is thought to be pro-business, whereas you're really pro-choice, mm-hmm. which, which means some business will be very much not happy for liberalism because they don't want to be, they want to be protected by the state from competition, something which I think Adam Smith noted way back in the, in the yeah. conversations. Well, I, I heard Peter, Peter Thiel at the last Mont Pelerin meeting in the Canary Islands when, when we could meet. Um, you know, who, who made, I mean, your PayPal and, you know, I mean, he's, he's an eclectic uh, and very interesting thinker, um, a- advocate sort of monopoly positions by the state. I couldn't believe it. And in fact, it was I and, and another um, Aussie who was with me who, who really took the fight to him. Yeah, it comes back to the principles of choice where you can exit. You know, I read a really wonderful book when I first uh, entered Parliament in 1981 called Exit Voice Loyalty. If you think about exit, you know, I, I don't have to argue with my hairdresser, my plumber, my doctor, my lawyer. If I don't like their job, I exit. I don't write them a note. I don't make them a submission. I just go. Loyalty, um, sorry, voice means if, if you're like you and I, you know, who are good on our feet, who will argue for our corner, we do all right in the face of these dreadful public monopolies because we argue. But what if you don't have the voice? What if you're not confident? What if you're a little person at the bottom of the heap? And then loyalty is when people, you know, stick uh, with an entity through thick and thin. And I think politics these days, you look at the Australian election just a few weeks ago, the idea of overwhelming loyalty to Labour and the Libs and, you know, the, the National Party on the side, gone busters. You, you, you look in France where the two big parties have been eviscerated. Macron was able to storm through the middle where those old parties, the right and left, were absolutely trashed marginalised on the sidelines. So loyalty, uh, which we used to think would, would make people put up with bad service through thick and thin, it's no longer the case. You're right. We've, it's been quite a shock, actually, here in Australia, the, the election mm. result. Um, mm. What comes of it, I don't know. If you're right, why does someone like as, br- as bright as Fukuyama and others, I'm not, not picking on him alone, get it so wrong? Because liberalism is, is uh, we go back, I went back to the where we started. There needs to be ideas put forward which are not being put forward. There's something missing at the moment, it seems to me. And you, you're, you're, you're a little bit of voice in the wilderness. Can you make, talk further on that? Is, is there an intellectual issue here, failure of, of, of will? Look, I don't, I'm a lawyer by training, not an economist. And I was once asked, what was my credential to be a Minister of Finance? And I turned my back to the audience and ran my hand down my back and said, spine. You know, it's, so you, you, you've got to have not just ideas, but the courage to put those ideas in, into practice. And, you know, I, I very much uh, admire Francis Fukuyama's analysis. I'm looking at that same article. Um, you know, he, he's, he's right to say that even if Putin loses, you know, the travails of liberalism won't end. But you mustn't yield ground to those who, who basically do the virtue signalling. You know, we, we believe in you know, helping 
the, the downtrodden. Well, where were those people when we saw all this huge fiscal and monetary firepower being unleashed? Um, you know, where are those who are really seriously interested in better, better education outcomes when they're marching with the teacher unions and they think about producers, not pupils? You know, so I, I think it's important to have a very clear strategic view of what does a public policy setting most consistent uh, with better outcomes, most consistent with better economic outcomes, social, um, with, with better personal outcomes, uh, and, and I guess you, you need to have this, this North Star. I mean, I personally, particularly as, as, a, as a woman who was, has always been an activist all my life and often the only woman in the domain, you know, you feel very keenly uh, that the voice matters uh, and that we're not going to be pigeonholed uh, and that the very best thing public policy can do is to enhance the capability uh, of individuals to make good choices, uh, you know, to follow their dreams, to contribute to the dynamic of economies. And I think finally the evidence for Francis Fukuyama will be, you know, are the autocratic countries, I mean, Venezuela's trashed, uh, we know that now, and Cuba as well, uh, but is China really going to prevail uh, in her current setting, which assumes all knowledge and all power uh, and all wisdom lie in the hands, not just of the Politburo, but one individual. Uh, I don't think so. Knowledge can't be. Um, I, I, I'm, I may not live long enough to see it, but I think you're right. I think you're right. Can I shift a little bit to the earlier? You, you, you welcomed some of the what I call social liberalism in mm. our society, and um, I understand that. Now, my question is, is there a danger coming from the very same movements? What's commonly called woke um, summary to mean situations where out of concern for harming people there's an mm. effort to suppress speech suppress reaction mm. often itself very harmful in suppression in the name of preventing right. Right. i read a wonderful article by jonathan um height uh, saying why the past 10 years of american life have been uniquely stupid and you you should reference that i must look it up because i'm a great fan of jonathan height's work yeah, yeah it's fantastic in the name of it's so patronizing you know, we suffocate thought, we suffocate ideas, we suffocate, you know, um, you know, speech uh, on the grounds that we assume uh, that individuals don't have the capacity to be discerning, uh, to make up their own mind uh, about um, debate and to determine uh, their own view on things. You know, it, it, it's, it's just another form of, you know, I, I grew up in a world where, you know, I fought for feminism because of the dreadful suffocating assumption uh, that was made, we called it sexism, you know, that, 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 you know, put women into a box. To hell with that. We're individuals who have the ability to contribute. Uh, and it's the, it's the same, a student. The idea that you shouldn't have a vigorous debate uh, by Bjorn Lomberg, for example, in one of your universities, uh, that they have to be cancelled, as it were. It's just nonsense. We, we're cotton-wooling uh, individuals at a time when we want you know, yes. the, the many voices to be heard. So, Ruth, Ruth Richardson, uh, am I right? One of the key found of fundamental beliefs of liberalism is in the strength and the value and the trust almost in the individual, that they, they that though they can be weak, we know people are weak, we mentioned earlier those, but mm -hmm. a fundamental optimism about humans having the strength to handle life. Y yes, it is, it is. I mean, we, we need to equip them uh, with the tools. 
which was why I always start with, with education. Um, we need to hope that they've got, you know, the value set uh, of strong uh, family life, but we have to be prepared to accept a big dynamic. Yes. Uh, and it's the dynamic that I love. Now, I'm going to actually put your crystal ball, get your crystal ball out. The, 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 the liberal revolution of the 80s and 90s followed the stagflation of the 70s. But you almost wonder where there's a swing and swing here. Today in the paper, people are talking about stagflation, the, the this runaway inflation after the profligate spending by central banks and failure to manage monetary policy adequately. You've mentioned already the war in, in um, Iraq. Do you see a golden future for liberalism as a reaction to the bad things happening today? Is there still uh, hope? Yes, yes, I do. There's a great sense of deja vu about what we face. We're facing a war session. So it's not just the high inflation. It's a a war-dominated recession. And, you know, it's like North Star. I mean, what are the policymakers going to have to turn to? They're going to have to turn to a more sober, robust view about the conduct of monetary policy, uh, of fiscal policy, about what makes nations competitive, uh, about how you serve the interests of, you know, billions of consumers making choices. Uh, and I believe that the current policy prescription, uh, which is, is the state gone mad, uh, will of itself destruct. I mean, it's happening right now. Uh, and the future lies in uh, younger minds, uh, people with with the fresh passion uh, to argue for, you know, how we reset, how we we rebuild uh, the the comity of of nations respecting differences, uh, but which allow that that dynamic uh, to prevail again. So you're seeing another version of creative destruction with the failed policies. Yes, yes, I am. I mean, that's orange, that's a nice way to finish. One last thing to do this. You talk about young people taking up this charge. What was it that made you someone who took up the charge? Have you always believed the passionately these things or have you come to it? I'd just finally like to know something about you personally, how you became what you are, where that backbone came from. Well, it's it's DNA. I mean, I I come from from a family. My great-grandfather was a member of parliament, so there's been a lot of uh, politics uh, in my family. My grandmother and father very politically active. Uh, but I grew up in a, in a very typical New Zealand situation, a, a, a quite a big farm, uh, sheep and cattle, where, you know, contrary to sort of the world mould, New Zealand farmers are the most free market, open market individuals in the world. And that was the environment in which I oh, grew up. And at 15, I decided I would be a politician because if, if I added that DNA and the feminism, which is don't you dare put me in a corner. And I can say this to you, Rob. <laughs> I was, my mother was a Catholic and my father had no denomination. So I went yes. to uh, a Catholic girl's school, uh, which is the stuff of which rebellion is made of itself. Yes, I, I believe I, so. I said to the nuns, why can't I be the Pope? Where does it say? Where does it say in the Bible that I can't be a Pope? And when the answer was, well, we can't show you, it's all allegory, I said, thank you very much, bye-bye. <laughs> So it was a strong feminist streak right. as well. I'm just, my, my question is sort of, and this is a big push of hope, that, that you're, in a sense your own work has been very significant, but you're also saying we need to hand a baton to another generation mm-hmm. who will deal with the results of the present very bad situation. 
Um, but you do definitely believe that liberalism has a significant and valuable future. I think it's the only serious flag for the long term uh, that you would you would want to fly. I think those who want to fly an autocratic flag, their days are numbered. Ruth Richardson, thank you very much for such an interesting, feisty and backboned and thoughtful, <laughs> and thoughtful presentation. This has been another podcast from the Centre for Independent Studies. For decades, the CIS has been an independent voice working to deliver evidence-based policy within a classical liberal framework. We rely solely on the generosity of people like you for donations to advance our cause. Head to cis.org.au to see how you can get involved. I'm Rob Forsyth. Thank you for listening.